We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. service on a Thursday night, our last hour together. It's 10.06 and talking about a lot of the the fallout, spinoffs, whatever of, of the pandemic. And one of the things that has been very evident is uh, the need for food for some of our most vulnerable, the, the, the needs of food banks around our area and all over the country uh, have been really challenged. They've been strapped. Uh, it's been an incredibly difficult time as they try to help out people who maybe have never needed that help before, along with the folks who were already, you know, some of the most vulnerable and in need. And so different efforts have popped up all over the place. And one very cool grassroots thing that has popped up around our area is St. Louis Fill Up the Pickup Challenge. Scott Hugritz joining me now to tell us about it. Scott, thank you for joining us on KMOX. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. Well, tell us about this. It sounds like this started out almost as a subdivision event, and it's really taken off. Uh, well, yeah, that's exactly how uh, it happened. Um, I, uh, early on in the pandemic, um, last year in, I'd say late April, um, I, I learned that food insecurity was a problem through, um, some Facebook posts that I read. And, um, I kind of talked to my neighbors and said, Hey, I want to drive around the subdivision. And, um, if you'd like to donate some food, just have your food out at the end of your uh, driveway and I'll swing by and pick it up and I'll take it to the food bank. And um, that quickly turned into, uh, well, within 12 days, <laughs> it turned into a, an actual food drive in which uh, we collected, I think, about 16,000 pounds of food uh, all within 12 days, all by a bunch of people that had never uh, organized a food drive before. Um, so it was this tremendous outpouring of, of support and goodwill and it just it just kind of um, really brought to life this idea that there's a lot of unity and community spirit uh, in our region that is waiting to be untapped. So now trying to uh, grow this and get more more pickups to be filled up in more neighborhoods. Tell me about what you're asking folks to do. <laughs> well, um, again, this is all volunteer. Every every single bit of this effort is run by volunteers. We are now covering 1,200 square miles of the metropolitan area. We've got, we've got drop-off locations as far northwest as Wentzville, as far um, east as uh, Maryville, Illinois. We're in Belva, Illinois, and we're all the way uh, down south in Hillsboro. 
So it's a tremendously large swath of the metropolitan area that we're covering. Again, all um, all volunt- This is all volunteer run. Um, so we've got we've got eleven uh, drop off sites that are going to be manned by volunteers uh, throughout the area this Saturday uh, from ten a.m. until one thirty p.m. Uh, the drive is set up for individual subdivisions and small businesses to rally together to fill up a pickup, and then they would bring those pickups uh, to one of our individual drop sites. However, of course, we are accepting uh, donations from individuals whose subdivisions may not uh, have been participating thus far. So if there's anybody out there that wants to be a part of this tremendous um, goodwill effort uh, that's being put forth by the residents of St. Louis and the metro area, please come out and and bring your donations to uh, one of our drop sites across the metro area. And you've teamed up with the St. Louis Food Bank, and I know that they had lots of struggles throughout all this, both need on the one hand, trying to, help, you know, need for food to help people out. But on the other hand, a lot of their volunteers could not work with them because of COVID-19. So it was the double whammy for them. What did they, what kind of reaction did you get when you f- first pulled up with your 16,000 pounds of food? <laughs> well, keep in mind the way that the way that I found the St. Louis area food bank is I Googled them. I had I had never worked with anybody there before. So initially, when I told them, "Hey, I've got this idea. I want to do this," um, they they were supportive. Um, but within about five days of after I initially contacted them, they saw the support that we were getting, and, and they and they got the Missouri National Guard involved. In fact, during that first drive, again, all within 12 days, we filled up four National Guard trucks. Wow. Um, so, like, it, it quickly evolved into something that was, that was larger than most people, including myself, would have thought was possible. Well, I'll tell you what, that's got to be something that's awfully rewarding. And this all started, this all started from just seeing stuff on, on Facebook, which is, which is fascinating. I, I know that we have those kind of individual stories that touch us for you for me uh my my kids elementary school every year had a a field trip to the food bank and they'd all go and they would you know package up package up goods that have been donated they would do stuff like that it was a a tour and a really good learning experience and uh we tried to set up a thing around the holidays where my wife and kids and i would go over and volunteer for a day at the at the food bank and we got canceled because, again, COVID-19 and they weren't letting any kids in and they had very specific limitations to volunteers in general. So we basically got pushed aside. And I and I knew uh, and not in a bad way. I don't want to sound like we were pushed aside. It was just one of those things where it just wasn't going to work with the all the rules that were in place. And I knew they were struggling. And so many of them were. Uh, we have a small business we own uh, down in Arnold that overlooks the Arnold Food Bank, and mm-hmm. we're, it's a car wash, so we're outside, and you, you, you look over the fence there, and you would see these lines of cars around the building at the Arnold Food Bank, and yeah, they were busy like any food bank, but this was this was something completely different, and uh, you, you could clearly <coughs> see the need that was there, and I'm sure that groups like yours are, are a blessing to the folks at the food bank. 
Yeah, and you know, it, it is interesting. Like I again, I I think food insecurity is is something that most Americans can very easily overlook because we're constantly surrounded by food. But the fact of the matter is, is that there are people that that are sort of systemically dealing with this problem, but there are also a large group of people that that you know a couple bad bad events can put them in a position where they're food insecure and they're have they're having to make very difficult decisions about you know putting food on their on their family's plates or making tremendous sacrifices elsewhere and of course that's you know anybody that's gone through that can understand how stressful and unpleasant that can be so you know, I think that hopefully everybody that that participates in, in an effort like this or any sort of food relief effort, they understand the profound impact that it has on, on, on people's lives that are in need. Because not only are we helping to bring nourishment, but we're also helping to bring a sense of calm and a sense of, of um, like extending loving care to people that you don't know. I, I have a feeling that the people that receive food from food banks know um, in the back of their minds that a lot of times that food is being donated by pe- by their neighbors, you know. So, I mean, just knowing that there are people out there that care has to has to provide some level of comfort to those people that are that are struggling. All righty. Well, again, it's the St. Louis Fill Up the Pickup Challenge. It's benefiting the St. Louis Area Food Bank. You can go on Facebook. They've got a page on there where you can get all the information you need. Scott Hugerts, thank you so much for joining us tonight on KMOX. Thank you. Our website is www.filluptthepickup.com, and we also have a virtual a link to a virtual site. If you'd like to donate uh, money that way, uh, we'd certainly take that as well. All right. St. Louis, ready to chip in this weekend. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, sir. KMOX, it's 1015. KMOX at your service on a Thursday night. I'm George Sells, and as we've already discussed some, we're just a couple of days away from the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And talk about something that for many of us seems like just yesterday. Joining me, I believe, is one of those folks. KMOX is Brian Kelly, who has done a series looking into kind of the whole timeline of 9-11 and not just the day but what came after and how our country has changed and it's changed quite a bit brian thanks for joining us tonight it's my pleasure george well brian before we get into some of the stuff that you've discovered or that you've kind of gone through as far as the the process since uh we all have the answer to the question where were you that day what were you doing well i was actually in the KMOX newsroom at one memorial drive and uh, after the first plane hit, I went to the front of the newsroom where we had a what would today be considered a small television up on a shelf. And the news director and I were standing there watching it. I was preparing to do a live report on something to do with Claire McCaskill. I don't remember what the story was, but it was a live hit on, on Claire McCaskill. And we watched the second plane hit the tower. And up to that point, you know, you're hoping it was an accident. Maybe this was just a plane. That, you know, the first one was just an accident. But when we saw that second plane hit, and I can still see it, and watching a plane turn in midair still gives me the the, the creeps, uh, that's when we knew that this was a terror attack. 
And uh, we went, the, the station went to WCBS in New York to carry their live coverage. And then our newsroom scrambled. I went to Lambert Airport. Kevin Colleen went downtown, other places downtown. We had Ali Dowell, who was working for us at the time at the old cathedral. And we all hit different areas, but uh, I'll never forget it. One of the interesting things, and I do include part of this in my series, is when I was at the airport with thousands of people who were all on these planes that had been ordered to the ground right away, I talked to a man who had an office in the World Trade Center. He was on his way back from Hawaii, and he said, you know, I'm having a tough time here, but nothing like the folks that I work with back there. And uh, it, it was a day, obviously, that I'll never forget. And he may not have realized yet that he probably lost a lot of friends. Exactly. Exactly. Well, tell me about the series. and We'll give you folks the opportunity because much of it has already run. And so we'll give folks the opportunity to uh, go to the, the podcast area and listen to it later on. But uh, just kind of run through for me. What were the things that, that motivated you as you were moving through it and the subject matter and just how, how you decided to approach it? Well, I wanted to take a look at the 20 years since and primarily, are we safer and what are the current threats? And so the first segment that ran on Monday that you can find at KMOX.com, it talked about the day and it included our coverage here in St. Louis. I talked to Illinois Senator Dick Durbin, who was in the Capitol at the time, and Illinois Congressman, then Congressman John Shimkus, who was actually in the Pentagon that morning and had just left when the first plane hit in New York. So he was in the Pentagon just maybe an hour or so before a plane hit the Pentagon. And and so we talked about, you know, their reaction initially. Uh, Fire Chief Dennis, uh, Dennis Jenkerson of the city of St. Louis, he said that he knew right away when that first plane hit that it was a terrorist attack. And he talks about how he reacted and uh we hear from then police chief Joe Moqua talking about, you know, trying to reassure people that uh, St. Louis is safe, that we're taking precautions. And Kevin Colleen is outside the Eagleton courthouse describing the security there. And he says very clearly, he says, this is a day that none of us will forget. Uh, and, and so the first segment is more about that day itself. And from there, I, I wanted to just follow the, the, the path we took as a country from there. And of course, one of the first steps was the war on terror. George Bush saying, we're going to go after Al Qaeda, but we're not going to stop there. And the support was pretty much unanimous for going into Afghanistan. But then after a little while, and and we contained the Taliban and, and took care of them, remember, we switched to Iraq. We kind of diverted a little bit or a lot to Iraq. And then started trying to nation build in Afghanistan. So where did we go wrong along that path that led us to what turned into America's longest war, a 20-year war? In 20 years, and that was on, undone in a matter of weeks when we left. Exactly, exactly. And then, so, okay, while we were fighting the, the battles overseas, we also tried to protect the homeland. So I looked at how we did and are doing that. Some of that involves local authorities, how they had to shift. Uh, Jenkerson told me that, you know, before 9-11, as firefighters, we fought fires. But after 9-11, we 
became more interested and, and involved in the intelligence gathering, at least, you know, being alerted every day. They get something that tells them of the, of the pending threats, the possible threats, the way that if you remember, George, at that time, it, fire departments, police departments couldn't communicate with each other. They all had different radio systems, and there was a lot of expense made to getting everybody on the same communication system. So now the fire departments, we have 40-something fire departments in the St. Louis area. They all work closely together, and they all can communicate in a large part because of the response to 9-11. And police departments, they didn't do much of the intelligence looking for possible terrorist attacks, but now they do. They still have task forces that keep an eye, you know, look for any signs locally of potential threats. And so it changed in that way. Now, also remember, the Patriot Act was enacted, and that allowed the government to do more surveillance of American citizens. And that is a concern among some people, including uh, the ACLU, of course. And I talked to a national uh, person with the ACLU about her concerns about surveillance since 9-11 and how the government has on occasion gone overboard with, you know, getting too much information on American citizens. So then, of course, we had to take care of flight safety because the, the terrorists were able to board planes with box cutters and execute their plan. Are we really safer? I talked to an aviation expert who says, no, we're not really any safer. But the TSA was formed in November of 2001, and the TSA says, oh, yes, we are. And we find out more about what they do behind the scenes, not just the hassle of going through security at the airport, but what they do before you get to the airport and what they do about the people who work at the airport who have access to planes who don't have to go through that security every time like the passengers do. And then tomorrow, the segment is on the current terror threat. And I talked to an expert from the Sufan Center, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan kind of terrorist watch group. They keep an eye out on these things and study these, these threats. And while there are still the international threats, and you mentioned Afghanistan and how it's all changed in the last couple of weeks, that is obviously a concern. But the primary concern for a lot of the folks who study this is domestic and what we saw on January 6th. And it's interesting to note that the way that the like white supremacist groups attract and radicalize members is the same way Al Qaeda does it. And we'll hear about that. And then we'll hear about the other threats like cyber, of course, which is a relatively new threat that we've seen already carried out in some some cases. And, of course, there's uh, the nuclear threat. And we hear from Colonel Jeff McCausland, who is, of course, a CBS uh, analyst who has great insight into a lot of these. And, and he talks about the nuclear threat. And so it kind of tells us what we have to look out for today. It's such fascinating subject matter because so much is so different uh, I know telling my 12-year-old daughter about how we used to be able to go in and greet her grandma at the gate when she flew in to visit us, uh, and the look of pure shock and exasperation on her face. <laughs> what? You could yes. just go in there and you didn't have to take your shoes off to go through? <laughs> it's uh, it's something to explain. It's fascinating to explain to kids. I'm sure you've talked to uh, to younger people about this, and uh, it's it's interesting to watch their reactions. 
Yes, it is. And, and like, I don't know if you remember at Lambert Airport, we used to be able to go out before they added the other terminal. This is way back. You could go out and stand in an outdoor area and watch the planes come up to, to the terminal and watch them go away and take off. And you were right there. And there used to be a place that was very popular there on Lindbergh where people would go and eat their lunch and the planes would come in and land, you know, right over them. I was there one day when they were actually getting ready to close it, and an F-15 came in and made a sharp turn, and I was looking at that pilot right in the eyes. It was an amazing <laughs> sight. You can't do that anymore. They don't have those places like that where you can get that close to planes coming in. And, and anywhere you go now, you know, you have to go through this security, and a lot of that, you know, nowadays a lot of it has to do with weapons, but initially that had a lot to do with terrorism. And, and they wanted to make sure that nobody would go into a public place and, and conduct a terrorist attack. And, and that all changed on 9-11. And not to sound uh, too cynical, but th- there have been places and ways for people to capitalize on the, the new world, the brave new world, so to speak. I, I always remember uh, I was working in Louisville, Kentucky at the time. And mm-hmm. the Kentucky Derby in the infield, one of the great traditions was you could pack up your cooler and bring your cooler into the infield and have your lunch. And you could bring sodas, and basically anything but alcohol you could bring in. And people were always trying to sneak that into. But you could bring a nice picnic lunch in and enjoy the races and have a good old time. And right after... 9-11, the first derby after 9-11, and of course they were very concerned about, you know, big crowds at that point. You know, the Kentucky Derby would draw 150,000 people. Well, one of the security measures they took that, to my knowledge, is still in place today is banning the coolers and all that kind of stuff, and they opened a Thornton's convenience store, which is kind of like a QT that they've got over there, mm-hmm. uh, in the infield. And so... For the low, low price of whatever it was, you could go and pay convenience store prices to buy your sodas and sandwiches and everything else. And while I understood it that year, it kind of makes you wonder, five, ten years on, uh, if that's really still necessary or if it was just a nice little profit center for the folks in charge, so why mess with it? It was probably a little of both at the time. The profit center, I'm, I'm sure that uh, they there was a premium at that store, in addition to your convenience store prices, you were pro- probably paying a, uh, a Derby infield premium as well. No question but about you look it. At, <laughs> you look at the Boston Marathon bombings, and it was a couple of guys with backpacks that made bombs and, and you know, killed and maimed many, many people. And so, you know, you can't stop them all, but you have to try to stop as many as you can. And, and the real danger, of course, is the rogue terrorists, the one or two terrorists who want to carry something like this out and one of the the scary lines and i i don't really want to give away the end but i will is is mccausland saying that he heard a and we probably heard this before but in in this context it really kind of strikes you is that you know a terrorist an ira terrorist was arrested before trying to bomb an event in england and he said you caught me this time but we only have to succeed once and, that will and make- that's the challenge. You can stop a lot of these attempts and intercept them. And most of them that have been stopped, we will never know about. 
But all they have to do is succeed once. And they succeeded in a big way on 9-11, and it changed our lives. Absolutely. So, Brian Kelly, thank you so much for joining us, folks. Tomorrow morning, KMOX, tune in for the final part of Brian's series on 9-11, 20 years on, and what has become of America since then. Brian, thanks for joining us. Thank you, George. Thanks for having me. KMOX at your service on a Thursday night. I'm George Sells with you up until 11 o'clock. And one thing that's going to be coming out in the next few days, a lot of talk about schools, and it's mostly been about vaccines and COVID and quarantines and stuff. Well, this is something that we need to be talking about. It is the Missouri Teacher of the Year. And that teacher is going to be named here in the next few days. And boy, talk about some circumstances they've been dealing with. And we are joined right now. I am very excited to have Kristen Dowling. And Kristen teaches at Collegiate High School in the St. Louis Public School District. And she is one of the finalists. Kristen, welcome to KMOX. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Well, tell me, first of all, you were you were teaching at... Carnahan last year, and it's a high school, but it's kind of being converted to a middle school, so you've moved now over to Collegiate, but you're at Carnahan, and you put together a video to apply for this thing, and just tell me how this has gone since. Yeah, so last year I had some colleagues um, at Carnahan nominate me for the the district-level award for Teacher of the Year, Um, and typically during a more normal year, um, the selection committee would come and observe me teach, um, but obviously that was not possible since we were virtual during that time. So instead they had us put together this video to sort of explain our work and what we do. And so I collected some clips from some of my current and former students and my colleagues to to sort of show off what goes on in my classroom. Um, And it was effective. I won the the district level in the spring, which was really wonderful. Um, And then it just sort of continued from there. I kept getting more applications and more essays to write. So I went at the regional level as well for the St. Louis region. Um, And then I found out recently that I was a semifinalist and then a finalist for for the state level. So that's sort of been the progression. What goes through your mind when you get that call or that email that says you're a finalist? It was really exciting. I definitely wasn't expecting it. Um, I didn't really know what I was in for when I originally filled out the initial application. Um, but it feels really good. Um, this year and this past year especially have been really tough for teachers, tough for everybody, but in a particular way for teachers. Um, and it's really validating to have some of the hard work that I was able to, to share in my video and my essays um, seen for, for what it is and see all the good work that goes on in our schools. So tell me a little bit about your background. Now, you grew up in New England. You went to school at Yale. You started teaching uh, in the Boston public schools. What brought you to St. Louis, and what has kept you wanting to work in in big urban school districts? You did it in Boston. You're doing it here. Yeah, so I I moved to Boston to go to the Boston Teacher Residency Program. It's associated with UMass, um, but it specifically prepares teachers to work in the Boston public schools and, and urban districts. Um, and that was exactly what I wanted. So I went when I went to college at Yale, that was in New Haven, Connecticut, which is a small city that actually reminds me quite a bit of St. Louis. Um, and I loved it. I loved working um, in the school district. I learned a ton while I was there, and I wanted to continue doing that. Um, my fiance is, was 
is an academic and he got moved to WashU um, from the Boston area. So that's what moved us to St. Louis. And I was really excited to be able to move to another city that had had a district that was in need of, of teachers. Um, and I was really excited to join, join the district here when we moved. Now, you are a science teacher. It's, there's some biology. There's some pre-med kind of stuff in there. Tell us a little bit mm-hmm. about what you teach and how gratifying it is to work with these kids that you're working with every day. Yeah, so I've taught a little bit of everything um, in science. I'm a trained biologist, um, so that is sort of my, my first love with it. But when I moved to St. Louis um, and started working at Carnahan, they needed a chemistry teacher. Um, so I took that on, and I really grew to love chemistry much more than I did before teaching it. Um, it's great. It's one of those things where some of my classes, my, my biomed classes and my biology classes, are a little bit of an easier sell to kids because the connections to it are, are a little more obvious about, you know, medical issues and going to the doctor's office and maybe wanting to be a nurse or a doctor one day. Um, but what I found really gratifying was getting kids interested in things they, they didn't know they would be interested but in things like chemistry. Um, so I developed a unit around learning about air pressure and temperature and, and thermodynamics and, and used it to learn about climate change and, and weather. Um, so being able to have the kids get excited about, about content that, you know, if you talk to adults, they would kind of, you know, scoff at like, oh, chemistry class in high school is kind of rough. But but it's cool to be able to get kids excited about things that might seem dull or unimportant, but um, sort of showing them what is exciting and important about that stuff. I get I get a lot of, of satisfaction from that. And I guess the, uh, the the medical and the biological end of things has been something that in the current climate over the last year and a half uh, has been a big topic and something that probably hits home for everyone in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was really cool when, when a lot of this started I had some former students sort of coming back to me to ask me questions or talk about things that we had talked about in class. I had a really wonderful moment that a a colleague told me that one of my former students sort of uh, somebody in their class had brought up, you know, why can't, why don't we just have an antibiotic for, for COVID? And that kid was like, well, I learned in Ms. Dowling's class that, you know, this is a virus. We can't treat that with antibiotics. We'd have to get a vaccine first. And so, Finding those connections and knowing that the things are sticking with the kids is is excellent. Um, and again, it's a really easy sell to, to know that it matters what we're learning in class. And you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I, I just want to ask you about it. Uh, this has been difficult. This has been really difficult yeah. for families. It's been really difficult for kids. And it's been difficult for teachers. And if you could talk a little bit more about what those challenges have been for you, uh, especially you're working in a district that has kids from all walks of life and and some of them from backgrounds where they're they're struggling a little more than most economically uh this has just been a real tough go for everyone what has it been like for you trying to help everybody and help yourself and your colleagues as well get through it yeah i mean it was an incredibly steep learning curve because when we first had to go um, virtual at that point, not every child had access to technology at home. Um, we're definitely working towards that. I still think that there are some issues with everybody having access all the time. Um, so it was really, really hard. And I think the biggest thing that we learned that we had to do is we needed to, to maintain connections with families so that we know what they are missing. 
Um, you can't start to help a family until you know what they need. Um, so that was the biggest thing at, at my school that we had to develop systems to make sure that we were checking in with families a lot more regularly than we would in a typical school year to find out what's going on and what they need. Um, and that continued through last school year. Um, I definitely had, had stronger connections with families and more regular contact with them than I, than I would otherwise. Um, it was really hard, and, and I think it still is really hard in some ways. Um, but I certainly grew a lot as a teacher. Um, I've had to try so many new things all the time <laughs> to see what works and to get feedback from kids about what's working. Um, yeah, I mean, it was really hard, but I am absolutely a better teacher for having gone through it. So I guess there's that. One of those conversations I know that we've had in our house with our kids is the fact that you don't really know what you're capable of until you're tested. And uh, a lot of kids, a lot of teachers, a lot of schools finding out what they're capable of this last couple of years. That's absolutely true. Yeah, we can do hard things for sure. All right. Well, Kristen Dowling, thank you so much for joining us. Again, it's the Missouri Teacher of the Year competition. They are going to be naming the winner sometime in the next few days here. Oh, I didn't even ask you. They they did the your final interviews. How did that go yesterday? Um, it went really well. It was um it was a really cool opportunity. The panel that did the interview included a lot of uh, former Missouri Teachers of the Year. They asked really good questions. I got to, to have some one-on-one time with last year's Teacher of the Year um, and just had some really great conversations um, with them. It was definitely nerve-wracking, but but they asked good questions, and, and we were talking about the stuff that I get excited to talk about. So what was it your, was a good time. What was your favorite question? What was my favorite question? Um, well, there was one that was kind of interesting because the Missouri Teacher of the Year is not exactly a political position, but you get a seat at the table of a lot of people who have political positions. Um, and so they, there were quite a few questions about, you know, what would your message be speaking to this set of stakeholders? Um, and so that was sort of interesting to think about, like if I had the ear of the state Senate, what would I talk to them about? Um, and so I was able to speak about um, issues of, of resource allocation and educational equity um, across districts and, you know, teacher pay and, and all that kind of stuff. So that w- it was neat to be able to talk about those issues. All right. Well, Kristen Dowling, we're rooting for you. We'll keep everybody posted on how this turns out. Thank you so much for joining us on KMOX. Thank you for having me. Pleasure this evening here on KMOX. I'm George Sells. KMOX at your service, wrapping up our three hours together. Water cooler talk at the office tomorrow morning. It'll be the NFL. And it will be the fact that the Dallas Cowboys, they scored late and took the lead on Tampa Bay. But they gave Tom Brady a minute 24. You don't give Tom Brady a minute 24 at home. Ever. Or ever, period. Yeah, I was going to say ever. Alex and I were, were catching it in the break. It was a minute 24 they scored, and we're like, uh, they gave him too much time. This you is over. Tampa's going to win. You can't do down that Down the with field, Brady. touchdown. Yeah. Though, the, though the mythology of Brady's teams always get the calls will continue because the big play in their drive to, to score the winning points was a total offensive pass interference that did not get called. So that is your sport. That is your sports uh, microcosm for the evening. So uh, if, you, if you were for whatever reason not watching the game and are still interested, that's what happened there. And uh, football wise, 
big weekend coming up uh, for the Mizzou Tigers. Going to Kentucky. Little SEC football action underway. Got to tell you, for all that we're dealing with right now, and we're still in this pandemic and there's so much going on, there is something really cool about seeing games and stands full of people. Uh, God, I hope they're all vaccinated. You don't want this to turn into a super spreader event, but uh, I'll tell you what, that's, that, that's just fun to see. And I am looking very forward to going to Columbia and catching a game at some point soon. Maybe the Tennessee game on October 2nd. Anyway, 10.56, and my time with you is done. Thanks for being with us. Remember Brian Kelly, final part of that series on 9-11 tomorrow morning. I'm George Seltz. Good night. Now with the MLB app, you can get baseball your way. Pick your favorite team, your favorite players, and get customized highlights, stories, and breaking news right on your home feed. Follow the action with Game Tip, where 3D replays add another dimension. Plus, notifications can keep you connected to every pitch, every hit, every game. The MLB app. Baseball, your way. Download it now for free from the App Store or Google Play. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trade parts used with permission.